Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. New on the podcast, author Madeline Borcado on Yoko Ono. It alienated a lot of people because they couldn't take it. Loved by some, vilified over the years by many. They have this hatred of her already, and it just comes up as another example of why they wouldn't like her. Whether that's because of sexism, racism, misogyny. As soon as she married John, she wakes up the next day and the whole world is her mother-in-law. Or maybe people didn't like her output. She wanted to show people what they had done. One thing is true. She's viewed very differently today. So Madeline Bocaro, welcome. Um, this is an immense pleasure because you have written a book and uh, the book's title is In Your Mind, The Infinite Universe of Yoko Ono. It's an amazing book. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. Um, and for me, well, first of all, I mean, it's been acclaimed um, by Mojo and it's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame library of um, archives, and deservedly so, I would say. The detail is incredible in the book, and it's a bit like a, in a sense for me, it was sort of like a love letter to Yoko in terms of her life, her art, her music, and of course it contains the story, the love story between Yoko Ono and John Lennon. Um, I just want to say, first of all, that if anyone's interested in the book, I've got all the links below where they can buy your wonderful book. So we can mention that a few times, but I just wanted to say that straight away and they're all down there. Okay. Um, I want to start with you and ask you about your upbringing and whether you were brought up in either a musical or a culturally interested family. Uh, my parents were into music, but not the music I became interested in. They were into opera, Italian singers, uh, Frank Sinatra, and they were always playing music, especially on Sundays while my mom was cooking. Uh, and I appreciate it, but I got into rock and roll pretty early on. But they did you know. see some value in culture. That's if they were interested oh, in yes. that way. Yeah. Yes, yes. Okay. I just want to ask you, because when I was a, um, a teenager and I was a fan of David Bowie, and he represented more than just his music to me as a gay teenager at the time, he represented this world where I could belong rather than the world in which I was. And I know that you encountered Yoko Ono's work when you were quite young. And I just wondered what this figure meant to you in retrospect. Um, kind of the same thing Bowie meant. I was a Bowie fan at a young age as well. I mean, just the, the otherness and I kind of identified with her as an, I was an only child and I was looking for maybe a sister and I just kind of clicked with her messages and her art and her, her music later on. But I really first got into her because of her films. I had seen a picture of her in front of her bottoms film. And I thought that was a really interesting thing for someone to have done. And um, 
I just started following her from there. And the next thing you know, she was with John Lennon. So that was great because I could get all the news about her and see what she was up to. And I followed everything from, I was uh, 10 years old in like 1968 when I finally, when I discovered her. She was brought up in a very wealthy family. She had um, an absent father because he was away um, working. Hmm. And this family was very different because it was the upper class in Japan and in a sort of class system society. Um, and she was a very lonely child. Can you tell me about her early years and how you think that may have really defined her later work? Yes, um, she was in one of the wealthiest families in Japan and people think that's an envious thing, but for her, um, her mother was a socialite, her father was a banker, he was never home, he was never in the country. He, he was in America a lot, and uh, he was actually a prisoner of war during the bombings of Tokyo. And, you know, she had a really rough childhood. And uh, John had a similar thing where his parents both literally abandoned him. Um, and he later became closer with his mother, and then she was killed when he was 17. So they both had this, this abandonment issue. They were both always kind of in survival mode. You know, and for her, she had therapeutic, therapeutic ways of dealing with it. She started creating and doing the art, which a lot of people didn't understand at first. John was just raging. You know, he was trapped in the infamy of the Beatles and he was looking for something else. And when they met, they really, you know, saved each other. They completely clicked and understood each other. Uh, on a humanistic level and also on, on a, uh, an art level and in their humor, everything was just amazing. And it's just a, an incredible love story woven throughout the book. I mean, there, there is this point where you really understand how lonely she must have been um, as a child. How did that exhibit itself and what did she get into because of this loneliness? Um, well, she was brought to America because her father had uh, been working there and she was a really an outcast in America also. And uh, when the American hatred of Japanese occurred, they all returned back. So not only was she lonely, but she experienced um, discrimination, even at a young age when she was evacuated during the war. Um, to the countryside with her siblings, the children there wouldn't give them any food or, or anything because they considered them to be, uh, you know, too upper class and threw stones at them. So she was getting it from all angles. And then later on, it was racism and, and sexism and, and lies were written about her. So many lies. And you have so many people still walking around with this anger towards her for breaking up the Beatles or for monopolizing John Lennon. And, you know, it's really hurting these people to carry this anger, which is based on lies. And she really, really uh, was a wonderful woman who cared about John immensely. Even after his death, she dedicated her life to sustaining his legacy. I mean, you mentioned she was foraging for food for her siblings um, during the war. And then I believe it was after the war um, when she went back to Tokyo and she went to school with Emperor Hirohito's sons. Um, what has she said about her school years and how they were? Well, she, of course, one of the sons had a crush on her <laughs> and uh, <laughs> they were they were really good friends um but then she left to study philosophy she was one of the first philosophy students um so she she was into her own world she was into buddhist buddhist philosophy and just writing her own poetry and writing books and when she was uh experiencing those war years she thought to herself i'm going to write about this um, so that she could kind of make it subjective and not have to feel how painful it really was. And she was going through it as if it was a, a movie, you know, an experience of someone else. And that was her dedication to expressing her, her own self. You've created the book in a way under certain subject headings, instead of having a sort of linear um, story of her life. What was the thinking behind the way that you have created this book? 
the book kind of existed without me knowing it. I'd been writing articles about her all my life, some for publication, some just to, for my own memory. Like if I'd gone to a concert, I'd write about it or an album, what I felt about it. And uh, I had gotten some software where I could dump all these Word documents I had into uh, this software and arrange them. And they were all short stories. And it's a good thing because a 500 page book, page one, day one, Yoko Ono was born and then going 91 years, nobody could do it. I had to just put it all together as a jigsaw puzzle, the way it fit. And it is chronological somewhat. I mean, it, you know, it, it just, it flows. So that's how that came about. I mean, there are exceptional um, stories in the book that make up an exceptional life. And um, one of them was about someone she was in school with uh, if I get the name right, Yukio Mishima. Mishima, yes. Mishima, okay. Can you tell <laughs> me um, his story and what happened later in life and the impact on Yoko? Um, he was a very famous author in Japan. He was very uh, <laughs> political, let's say, and he actually staged a coup and kidnapped some, you know, political officials and beheaded himself in their office. He, he just took a stand. But his life was based and his writing was based on using his own blood and his life flow. And I, that's the similarity between them. But she and he did not really jive because he was kind of a, a macho guy. And she he kind of ignored her when they were ever in a situation but I just put him in there because they have so much in common in that they they dedicated their whole life and soul and, and blood to their work. And he he did kill himself in the end, which she had, you know, a couple of suicide attempts when she was younger as well. But luckily, you know, later on, she couldn't understand how someone could kill themselves. <laughs> I mean, her work is often uh, connected to the elements um oh, yes. and i just wondered did that come from also come from a very young age and this idea that she was lonely so she sort of connected to different things rather than to people it comes from um the japanese aesthetic where that every object and thing has a soul um and she's very intuitive um with nature there's a whole chapter about how nature influenced her work and also a chapter about how japanese influence uh, is very heavy in her work. So, you know, it's all a, a Japanese aesthetic, but also, you know, uh, just how wise and intuitive she is. She'll say things like water is more valuable than gold. And you think about that and we don't, you know, we don't think that way. We place the money on gold, but, um, you know, she's just very, very wise. And this is why I wanted to write to the book to bring that out and we can learn so much from it. And she's so positive. She turns almost every negative into a positive and it it makes perfect sense the way she does it one of her early pieces i, I suppose you can early pieces of art really because it was a, one of the first things that she did which was cutting seeds and and putting them to, together to create something new can you tell a me hybrid. yeah so can you um <laughs> tell me about that and and also really the symbolism of doing that so it, she was a young child. She was like five years old in the garden with her mother. And she was looking at the trees and she said, well, what if I take a seed from this tree and a seed from that tree and I make a, it would the fruit become different? And that's how she got the title of her book, Grapefruit. And she always felt like a hybrid of East and West, you know, and she just um, planted the acorns. That was part of the the continuing nature theme, you know, they planted John and Yoko acorns, one facing east and one facing west. Um, so, and they mailed acorns to world leaders to plant trees after that. So um, it was just her connection with nature. And, and of course there are hybrid trees. She didn't know that at the time, but she thought it was her invention. And she always felt like a Madame Curie that she was discovering things all the time. I mean, it was in Grapefruit. I remember reading it and there's it's the story of her lying down and looking through the hole in the roof. Um, yeah, that's to the another sky. artwork of hers. It's called Hole to See the Sky Through and it's a postcard with a little hole in it. 
And everybody thinks, oh, this is cute. I'll look at the sky. But what it represents is when she and her younger siblings were evacuated to this farmhouse that was very run down. And they were laying on the backs looking up and there was a hole in the roof and all she could see was the sky. And that to her was the 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 most beautiful thing that she would see for a year while she was, you know, foraging for food with them. And she it gave her hope like the sky would always be there. What did New York mean to her when she first went to New York? Um, well, she was an artist when she arrived in New York, and um, it meant uh, a lot more people who who were up for her ideas in a way, because Japan was kind of, you know, thinking she was a little strange. <laughs> but she came to New York, settled in the Gre in Greenwich Village, and um, jumped right in. She started exhibiting at uh, this Paradox restaurant. She was doing her bag piece at Judson Church. Um, she did a thing at Carnegie Recital Hall, and then she uh, got her own building, her own apartment, where she um, gathered all the avant-garde artists so they could perform because there were no venues for them at the time. There was only, you know, Carnegie Hall and like jazz clubs and things like that. But she thought, well, wait a minute, people, you know, need to perform their work. And she opened this space. She was kind of like the first person to do a meltdown festival, you know, in her own little apartment. I mean, her work is um, unfinished in a lot of ways. What is the thinking um, behind that? Well, she wanted people to participate. She didn't want, you know, it hanging on a wall to be admired. That's not her idea of art. It's interactive. It's, you know, what you make of it. And she liked that idea that, you know, it would just be um, your own interpretation. She would guide you towards the positive, but she would she would um, have a room half a room and it had objects cut in half and painted white and she was hoping that you would focus on the half that's missing not the half that's actually there um because that's what she sees and, and that whole thing represented her loneliness at the time when she uh separated from her husband tony cox um and she'd even say the piece that's missing actually has a vibration like music because that's how intuitive she is. She just would feel a vibration from something that's not even there. She always saw negative space and could really relate to it. I mean, she had a real ability to turn trauma into something positive through her art, didn't she? Yes, exactly. I mean, that was amazing. We, we talk about a few, few of those things. But I just want to ask you about George Machiunas, if I've got that right again, who founded uh, the Fluxus Movement. Um, and she was connected to him. Um, and this was experimental art, and it also had some sort of unfinished process um, to it. Um, it was mainly men. So how did she feel to be part of this movement? If you mentioned sexism, I think later there was real misogyny, uh, you know, uh, of Yoko Ono. And it was a you know, terrible thing that was going on. But I, I just wondered how she survived in this male world? Well, it was just as bad back then in the late 50s, early 60s. Um, she did connect with McCunis and they were really kindred spirits. He gave her her first exhibition in New York City um, and he manufactured some of her objects for her, um, but it was a man's world. She had been touring with her husband, Toshi Ichinagi and John Cage all over Japan. Uh, Mayazumi, there was all men, all in New York. Um, so one of the reasons she tried a suicide attempt was because of this, when she, she returned to Japan very despondent because she couldn't get out of that world. But she felt unimportant, didn't she, in their yeah. art? So uh, where, did that, where did that come from? Was it just her feeling? Was she underused? Were they actually not looking at her as not important? Was that really the case? Not that she wanted to be used in that Fluxus movement. She was part of it, but she was always kind of separate. She didn't want to be part of a thing. She was her own independent uh, entity. You know, she didn't appreciate um, collaborating at the time. So um, she just became despondent because she wasn't she was doing these group things with them and he did give her her first, first exhibition, 
Um, and then she went to London because that's where it was happening. And that's when she met John. Yeah, I just want to, I want to get to that in a second, but there's one one piece which I completely adored, which was called Cut Piece. Um, and it's an incredibly brave thing to do. Can you tell me why this is so brave? What exactly happened on stage? So um, it's where she wears her best outfit because she wanted to give the best of herself. And she places a scissor on the stage in front of her and invites the audience members to come and cut a piece of the clothing. And a lot of people th think it has feminist overtones, which it, it obviously does, but I don't think she meant it that way. It was more of a idea of an artist giving of themselves, like in the sense that Buddha gave everything he had. So, you know, this was the thing. And then in, in Japan, when one of the first times it was performed, a guy took the scissor and made a motion like he was going to stab her. So, of course, there was a dangerous element to, you know, what people are going to do. And um, she continued to perform that, you know, and actually Charlotte Mormon uh, performed it many times. She was another, uh, she coordinated all the avant-garde art festivals and um, she was amazing. They were very close friends and Charlotte performed cut piece throughout her life as well. Yoko did it later in Paris and she had Sean standing there with her in case anything went wrong, but nothing ever did from, you know, that first experience. I mean, it's an immense amount of trust between her and the audience in in that piece. And that's why it always fascinated me. Yes. A lot of other artists have performed it as well recently. Now, it came through um, John Cage, I believe, or for John Cage. They were collecting, um, what, lyrics or musical pieces? It was actually, yeah, manuscripts. It was John Cage's birthday and they were her and a bunch of artists were collecting manuscripts from other musicians and artists to put together in a book for him so she was told to approach um paul mccartney and she did um but paul said well what do you mean i only have like written words because the beatles didn't write notation and she said well that's fine too and he said well go to John Lennon, go see John about that. Because Paul notoriously hoarded everything he ever <laughs> wrote. So before she could go and seek out John, um, she was setting up her first art exhibition in uh, London at Indica Gallery, which was run by John Dunbar, who was a friend of John and Paul, who I had the pleasure of hanging out with in London last summer. He's so wonderful. And um yeah, so he introduced them and Yoko was not too pleased because she was setting up the exhibit. She didn't want anybody to really see it yet or interact with it. And John was wanting to do everything. He wanted to hammer the nail in the painting and she wanted it all to be pristine for the next day. But he climbs up the ladder and he looked at the magnifying glass and saw the canvas with the tiny little words that said yes. And he was drawn in. And then he took a bite of her apple. <laughs> that was her artwork. And she was a little upset. But, you know, then it took 18 months for them to actually get together. This um, ladder had a story of its own. Didn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. There's an interview where she's talking about, um, well, they're asking her, hey, you know, you had this neighbor, right? Didn't you steal his ladder? for?" And she said, well, we didn't really steal it. We borrowed it. And I thought he would be thrilled to have it in an exhibition, but he was kind of angry. <laughs> so we had to get him another ladder. <laughs> John had already sung Help, which was sort of a, a, a sign that he wanted out <laughs> of, of the Beatles. Um, yeah. Was he a broken man when he met Yoko? He was, and um, Klaus Vorman, the bassist uh, who works with him later on, uh, was saying that, you know, all this fame and money and adoration meant nothing to him. He was uh, really not functional, and that's when he met Yoko, and then they did the primal screen therapy together, and he, Klaus was saying that, you know, he could barely even leave his room. He was just so a ball of anger. Was she a broken woman? Well, she had been had her share of rejection. She had that crazy childhood. And, you know, at the time, you know, she wasn't she was doing OK. She had her first London exhibition. She had gone to Paris and, and collaborated with Ornette Coleman. And she was not even uh, considering going back to London. 
especially because she felt this magnetism between her and John. And she thought, well, if I get together with him, it's going to be heavy. And how am I going to continue my work? And but it was inevitable. They just they were writing letters to each other and then they inevitably got together. I mean, we talked about her loneliness as a child and something that must have continued throughout her life. How did meeting John change her perspective on loneliness? Uh, he understood her. That was the, the crux of it. When he climbs up that ladder and and he would do like silly things to to make her understand that he got it all, you know, and the first thing he said was he wanted to hammer that nail. And she said, well, it's five shillings. And he said, well, can I give you an imaginary five shillings and an imaginary nail? And she she said, oh, my God, he really gets me. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Her first child was taken away from her when the child was six years old. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, this is... an not just an amazing story, but it's such a human tragedy that someone's child is taken away. Um, and at one point, she even put out an advert to try and get in touch with her child again. Can you tell me that story and how that eventually resolved itself? So um, she and her husband, Tony, he was an American, he was kind of her promoter. Um, they had a daughter, Kyoko. And when she was about five or six years old is when Yoko met John. So at first, Tony was kind of palling around with, with John and Yoko, but he saw that they were having a lot of trouble. You know, they had, they were doing drugs. They had this infamy, you know, and he didn't think that was a good environment for the girl because he had raised the daughter, just like John raised Sean later on, because Yoko was doing her work. And uh, he decided uh, he didn't, want to have any part of John and Yoko anymore and he took the girl and they disappeared and what was he worried about do you know maybe that she would think of John as her father now instead of him you know I'm sure there was some jealousy involved and maybe just for protection of her too I it was it was a bad thing that he did but I don't think he intended it to be an evil thing he just said no I'm, I'm gonna you know raise this girl so he took her away and John and Yoko spent so much time and money legally to try to find the girl and Yoko legally won custody, but they were never able to find her. They did at one point briefly and then they left again. And years later, it was found out they, they had gone into a religious uh, sort of cult to to hide. And then he was afraid of leaving there, not only... Uh, because of John and Yoko, but because the, she he didn't want them to take the girl back into the cult. So it was a big mess. And in the end, he, he did make a statement that he didn't realize how much pain he had caused Yoko. And it, it was a big mess. But later on, the girl ended up getting in touch when she was going to have her first child. She said, you know, the child needs her grandmother. So she reached out to Yoko and they're great now. And Yoko's an artist as well. And she has my book and she's doing fine. She has two children. Keep watching for more on Yoko Ono. And don't forget, please subscribe. It helps me and it allows you to find out when a new podcast is up on the platform. And thank you for watching. Uh, 
I mean, you talked about the acorn idea, facing in different directions of both of them coming from very different worlds um, and having very different perspectives, I presume, when, when they met. How did Yoko widen John's world? Um, they widened each other's worlds. I think John was looking outward. You know, he was getting into avant-garde art, other, other things besides music and he wanted to speak out politically, but he, the Beatles management wasn't allowing him to. And here's this person who he could project everything onto. And she ran with him. They got together right away and hit the ground running with the Bedins for Peace and, you know, the Give Peace and Chance song, the music together. And, uh, you know, she didn't really widen his world as much as let him live it and tell him that, you know, you don't have to listen to these other people. You don't have to you know, conform like this, so. Well, in a sense, I think because he was interested in her, um, there's definite references like Imagine, which is in Grapefruit, where, uh, so the inspiration um, for one of the greatest songs of all time came from um, Yoko, but she wasn't credited on it until, or, or later it was sort of came out, right. but uh, initially not. Um, so she obviously played an incredibly important role in inspiring him in his musical ventures as well. Yeah, she could read notation. She was classically trained. You know, she could give him advice on arrangements. She could give him ideas about lyrics and tell him when something was not good. You know, so um, she had an influence in every aspect of his life and he on her and it was really one of the deepest love stories I've ever come across. I mean, it's with also... Imagine, there's the film when they're at, uh, I think it's called Tittenhurst, the 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 home that they lived in, this in mm -hmm. you know the white, beautiful white video in a, in essence. Was that a place where they could both be free and both be themselves away from public view? It was. They were constantly working when they were there. They were recording the Imagine album and they made the film there. Um, but I don't know, both of them kind of thought it was too much for them. It was, it was too isolated and too big. And, um, they ended up going to New York city and staying and never going back. So they liked that city environment. I mean, you did touch on it, but her art took the back seat in a sense. I mean, she still carried on with her art, but in the public view, her art took a back seat because of the relationship um, with John. Do you know how she personally dealt with that? Um, she wouldn't have stopped it if she didn't want to. I mean, they were so much in love and, you know, they did a lot together. They did the Bettens, they did concerts, they did the Acorn event, they did the Bagism, they did all kinds of, you know, things together. Um, her last major exhibition before John passed away was um, in 1971 at the Everson Museum. They had an entire three floors exhibiting her. It was a retrospective from like 62 to 71. And it was gigantic. And she was, John really pushed that for her. And then, you know, in 72, they were on the concert. They did the concert in New York City with Sometime in New York City album. And that got panned. And that be, that led to kind of the downfall where John went on a bender for 18 months. The other wives of the Beatles, and I think this is where the sexism and misogyny comes in. Because if Yoko had been a man and John Lennon had been a woman, I don't think the hate that was the vitriol and the hate that really came up against Yoko Ono would have appeared and if you look at the other wives of 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 the Beatles because they're they conformed to the idea of maybe what society wanted at that time I don't know but Yoko only Yoko Ono didn't conform um she did what she wanted so you've talked about the sexism and the racism and possibly the, the misogyny. Where, where do you think it really lies, this terrible vitriol that there was against Yoko? It lies in the fact that journalists were told to pepper up their stories with lies about her. And it's evident in one of the interviews I used some quotes from was from Carolyn Kuhn, the writer from England, 
and it was an unpublished interview. And I said to her, why was this never published? It's beautiful. And she said, oh, it, the, the magazine wanted me to dirty it up and uh, say that she had abandoned her daughter and all these other things. This is why there's just lies out there. What I loved as well is uh, in the book, of course, you mention all the music that everything that connects them and and uh, the songs that are about their love mm. for each other. And one of them, I Want You, She's So Heavy, and it's a, a track from Abbey Road. And I think it's about eight minutes long or something. And it's just an, a, an, a, an amazing um, expression of the love that they had between them. When you were writing the book and then I presume re-listening to all the pieces of music as you were were doing it what touched you the most oh this the the admiration he had for her was phenomenal and her songs became more um less avant-garde and more of a uh, delicate and beautiful because of her love for him so that's what I noticed the most and um you know there there are songs where they're together and he's just pining you know just declaring his love for her and then when they're apart he's also you know missing her during mind games especially um all those songs uh, out the blue and I assume a which means I'm sorry and uh bless you all these beautiful yearning songs so they were nothing but good for each other you met Yoko Ono and you've mentioned that but you also had correspondence with her you were a pen pal uh, mm -hmm. of Yoko Ono what did you write about to each other um well I would write about I was young okay so I was like 13 when I started and I would write about my loneliness as a child and she kind of totally related to that and we'd write about our mothers or um, the music, I always ask about her music and her art. And then when we finally met, she would invite me to these exhibitions and concerts. And she was just so happy that I totally understood her meanings. And she was so happy to talk to me about it all. We've also mentioned that Yoko Ono as an artist, and nearly all artists, I presume all artists are uncompromising in their work. They do what they want to do and put out what they want to put out. Do you think that Lennon learnt that from her? Because previously being in a band, I presume there was there always had to be, even if there were challenges, there were always had to be compromise in the end. Do you think that what he could have learnt from her was also to be absolute uncompromising in what he wanted to do? Yeah, definitely. She'd tell him, you know, you don't have to do this. You don't have to do that. Do what you want. And, you know, the first album out of the gate was the, John Lennon Plastic Ono Band, and that was a gut-wrenching record. It's fantastic. Yeah, because the uh, other thing about trauma, of course, is that she had a miscarriage. Oh, um, she had a couple, yeah. All right, yeah. and the heartbeat of the child that they mm -hmm. lost was, I mean, it's absolutely uh, heartbreaking and moving to, to, to hear that. It is. It is. And, you know, there are silences on the record, you know, for you to kind of just reflect or add what you want and kind of an homage to John Cage. <laughs> so she, she really opened him up, you know, and that two, two virgins was kind of nutty where they were both, you know, kind of experimenting there and people didn't get it. <laughs> when John was shot, he was carrying... Uh, the tapes he was with Yoko he was carrying on the tapes and he uh, of walking on thin ice and he was uh, he managed to enter the Dakota building and the tape fell out of his hand on the floor and you know the rest uh, we know and that evening or shortly after that I think it was that evening she re-recorded a vocal in the studio didn't she I think she went back um, to it wasn't that quickly, it. but yeah, she did record it and finish it. Um, and she has a whole dedication on the picture sleeve of the single to John. You know, I did my best, you know, this is it. And um, did a video for it and premiered it. I believe it was at the Ritz in New York City on a big screen uh, almost a month after John had passed away. 
and I was there and it was really heartbreaking but it's a fantastic song and years later it did hit number John used to say you know you may hit your first number one Yoko just like George Martin had said to the Beatles um and years later um when she started doing these remix releases it did hit number one on the dance charts I mean I think for me personally I remember when that song came out and I played it uh endlessly and in a sense because I was never really you know to my shame probably but I was never really a fan of the Beatles because my brothers were and I wanted to, to not like what they liked I think okay. it was as childish as that but when that record came out the it was the first time that I really I think really experienced pain the raw pain in music but it wasn't um it was inspired by something else, wasn't it? What that song? Yeah, it was the inspired song was by a trip. Song. Well, yeah, to um, Lake. Uh, what's the lake called? Now? Michigan. Lake Michigan. Michigan. She's yeah, gone there with John, and she's seen Lake Michigan, and uh, that whole part, that middle part. I knew a girl who tried to walk up. That was inspired by by Lake Michigan, but the song, you know. The, the B-side of the song, It Happened, was an older song that she had had laying around. And it happens at a time of my life that I re least expected. And you don't know what it is that happened, but a lot of her songs were very prophetic. And I have a whole chapter about, you know, premonitions that she had. And yeah, th this sort of relates to season, uh, Seasons of Glass, doesn't it? Her, uh, her fifth album. Um, and that album had his blooded glasses uh, on the cover. One of the most, I think one of the most beautiful things that she was able to do was that she was able to give us her pain. Mm -hmm. How important do you think that was to her healing? It was major for her, but a lot of people, it, it alienated a lot of people because they couldn't take it they thought it was you know tasteless to do that or they have this hatred of her already and it just comes up as another example of why they wouldn't like her but it needed she wanted to show people what they had done it wasn't just the killer who you know it, it, they were attacked from all angles the whole world was trying to pull them apart all the time and all their energy was spent on trying to stay together and um you know, it was, it was a lot for them. I mean, you mentioned that point, but the, she, the song that she wrote after Lennon's death that had hate us, hate me, we had everything. And it's very weird in a way that it took his death for her to be accepted in any way so I just wondered how she felt about the sudden change of heart of the world to Yoko Ono when she was so vilified before it was strange to her she said that um you know after he died there was piles and piles of mail and she thought oh my god it's all for John and then she realized a lot of it was for her and she answered every one of those letters and there was a girl who told her that John had died on her birthday and Yoko wrote her back and said you know don't think of this as a sad day think of it as the day john's soul was set free to travel the universe and she continued sending this girl a birthday card for decades it's amazing That's how she was able to deal with trauma in a way to again turn something so negative into something so beautiful and positive in 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 especially in the most horrible thing that happened to her personally she became the keeper of his legacy and and she'd been seen as the person who'd ruined a legacy. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. It was sort of it's a bit bizarre that those two things went together. Um, did she ever talk about that? Well, in the beginning, she said, you know, as soon as she married John, she wakes up the next day and the whole world is her mother-in-law. You know, she didn't she knew it would be a big deal but she didn't know there would be that much uh what do you call it backlash <laughs> you know 
and and it was bad. She received voodoo dolls in the mail in the shape of her with pins in them. John got calls saying, be careful, she'll slit your throat in the night. Just insane. Also, after his death, um, really started to get the recognition that she always deserved. Not only um, musically along the way, have you already mentioned, I think she had a quite a huge number of number one dance tracks from mm -hmm. from, yes, from the did. remixes and everything mm -hmm. um, and also she you know got recognition from the museum of modern art from all these retrospectives um that she had um of her art how do you know how that made her feel to finally get that sort of recognition and she was over the moon about it i mean she had done a little thing in 1971 where she put up signs at Museum of Modern Art and declared it's Yoko Ono one woman show. And she put out in the paper for it. She had a catalog printed and she had a guy standing at the entrance and saying to people, hey, what did you think of the Yoko Ono show? And they were confused. Some of them said, oh yeah, great, whatever. And then Momo calls her up and says, hey, what's going on? Are you having a show here? You can't be having a show here. She says, oh, it, I am, but it's just in my mind. So don't worry about it. And then decades later in 2015, there it is, Momo, one minute woman show. So it's, you know, how you think positive about something you want, visualize it, it will happen. That's kind of what happened. And now in February, she has a huge one coming up at the Tate in England. And they're all over the world, her exhibitions. It's wonderful. What has writing this book helped you further understand about Yoko Ono? that you didn't maybe understand before? Um, more of what she had to endure, basically. I mean, I always understood her and what was important to bring forth about her work and her art and, and the meaning and her philosophy and her wisdom and all the things that people should really know about. Um, but just how bad the hatred was and how well and graciously she handled it. You mentioned earlier about um, in New York, and I've forgotten the woman's name, Mormon is her surname. The, um, sorry, Charlotte, was it? Charlotte um, Mormon. Yeah. Okay. Um, she really um, talked about what Yoko's legacy would be. Can you tell me what, what, what she said? She told the New York Times in 1989 that um, 100 years from now, it's not John Lennon people are gonna, or the Beatles that people are gonna remember, it's Yoko Ono. So how do you feel about that quote? I think it's wonderful. Um, who knows? I <laughs> think the it's- The Beatles uh, are pretty uh, strong, you know, the Beatles are going strong and partly due to Yoko, you know, and, and the whole Apple team, you know, repackaging all these 50th anniversary box sets and, you know, diligently remixing and remastering sean is a part of doing the john lennon boxes they're meticulously done they're beautiful books coming out just to perpetuate the legacy in the music and you know the beatles carry on that long they'll be just as famous as yoko is 100 years from now i think <laughs> i just want to ask you about the cover the cover is a wonderful illustration of yoko that i think represents her throughout the the decades um, and it was a greeting card I found online, and it was by an artist, uh, Australian artist called Kat McGuinness, and she allowed me to use it, and I'm so thrilled. We, we're both happy, and Yoko loves it too. As I said at the beginning, this book is definitely a labor of love. It's, you know, it's it's definitely from someone who really wanted to achieve um, and get everything from Yoko's life into this book. So it's sort of the definitive uh, biography written in a different style, in a sense. Um, and it also has quotes which underline what you've put in the book. Can you explain those? Sure. Well, all my life I've collected every magazine that she's ever had an interview in and radio interviews and all. And I guess since I was a kid, there was nothing much going on in life at the time. And I remembered you know, what she said in which magazine, and I have it all chronologically saved. So I was able to, you know, if I'm writing about this particular album, I'm like, oh, she said this in NME 1974, and I grabbed the quote, and she's talking about what the song means, or things like that. But, um, you know, I always liked 
books and reviews that are written by a fan of the person because why would anyone write about a book about something that they don't like you know it's only gonna you're just gonna dig up dirt and have to just try to make it exciting and do research and people say oh you did so much research I'm like no I didn't I knew what it had to be said and I knew where it was in my closet and I knew it was on the you know my tapes and I knew where it was in letters from her and I just put it all together there's a, a quote from Yoko about her own epitaph and it's just such a wonderful quote and it's towards the end of the book obviously and it is here is a woman who loved life and still does as her epitaph it's it's absolutely beautiful and it does say to you that this is someone who's still alive as long as her art is alive for me exactly yeah. maybe in another life as well in another life with john somewhere else <laughs> I just want to congratulate you again because it is a wonderful book. Um, it is, I mean, I thought I knew a lot about Yoko Ono <laughs> and there is so much in there of value and um, so many amazing, touching, wonderful stories and not just the love story, which is, you know, obviously a, a, a big attraction for the book, but particularly about her art and what she has achieved in her life. And I think the music side, which today is also seen in a very different light by many, many people. So I just want to say at the end, Madeline Bocaro, thank you so much and congratulations on uh, the achievement of this wonderful book. Thank you so much, Steve. I really appreciate it. I'm so happy you liked it. Up there is an interview I recommend. Down there is where you can find all the podcast interviews. And here is where you can connect. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.